Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is a man I've grown to love and cherish over the last few years. From a distance 10 years ago, I just thought he was an incredibly talented but also brave and strong man when he came out as the first ever gay rugby union player in the UK while he was still captain of Wales, still playing on the pitch. But working with him now, I know that rugby legend Gareth Thomas is a gem of a human being and his revelation two years ago that he's living with HIV has only further cemented him in my mind as a man of enormous passion and integrity to speak out and do the right thing. His new book, Stronger, is all about that. It's about empowering people. And he really is one of those people you spend a little bit of time with and his stardust leaves you feeling really lovely. So much so my kids are wondering whether it's too late to have him as an honorary godfather. Solgar are sponsoring today's episode and one of my top picks from them is their wild Alaskan salmon oil. Using an advanced purification process, it provides the full spectrum of essential omega-3s plus vitamin D and a saxin. Okay, let's get on with it then and hear from Gareth Thomas. How are you, Gareth? (laughs) I am. am. Do you know what? I'm brilliant. And it's, it's weird. I feel so brilliant because we're kind of at the back end of like this pandemic and I feel like I shouldn't be brilliant because everybody's talking like about how terrible, how tough and how difficult things would be. But I've been I've been busy, but what I've been more than anything is in the place I love the most. And that's at home um, with my husband. Like it's ge- I, I genuinely am a, I'm a home bird. But you see, like, like we, we work together. Let's come clean on that. Right. And yeah. And one of the shows we were doing a couple of years ago, you were flying off all around the world filming something. So you spent a lot of the last few years just getting on a plane, packing a bag, getting in a car. Mm. So you've had time to just go to t- yeah. decompress. This is the this is this is the time that I've always wished I could have had, and I really I did feel this kind of pressure, right, to fill up this time because I felt this like external pressure to fill it up with like really mundane things. As far as I'm concerned, like Gabby, you challenged me to read books more, <laughs> which <laughs> which I ended up reading my own autobiography because it was the only book that I had in my house. Okay, well we haven't had an update on that, so let's just have a little aside. Is that it? Is there no other book? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I ended up, I did end up reading the guy who wrote like uh, Angels and Demons. Oh yeah, Dan Brown. Dan Brown. I got in this, like I had this Dan Brown fad and I read them. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. But I, I didn't actually feel yeah. like I learned anything from it. Because I, I did take the mickey out of you a little bit and said, you can't keep writing books without reading other books. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, I've never read a book. So so I said, it's good for you if you're writing books to read other yes. books. So actually, we're jumping about a bit here, but actually you just, another book, uh, Stronger, is is out is yeah. out at the moment. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that, that was something, again, like through through lockdown that I was, I gave me the time to be able to work on it a lot more. And actually, like, I, I think in the book, but also in lockdown, I learned about who I am right now. Not who I was or what I've done, 
I, I kind of, I unraveled all of who I was. I unraveled all of what I'd done. And it gave me, and that's why I feel so good now, because it gave me a now that I understand. Like it gave me a now that I'm okay with. And it gave me a now to look at the people around me, glowing reference, you being one of them and so many others that actually, like I look at and think, wow, I am who I am now not just because of what I've done, but because of the people that I've been lucky to be around. And sometimes you come across people and you just think, wow, that was a cool, interesting moment. But you never you never go away and look back and think, well, what did I learn from that really cool, interesting moment or that really cool, interesting person? You take stock. You're taking stock, mm. it feels to me. I mean, we've, we've worked together closely for like four or five years, but we only see each other in a very sh- kind of short period of time. And I've noticed, if you don't mind me saying, mm. over those years, over those few years... You've changed in those in those few years, though. Yeah, you felt more. You felt kind of more like somebody who's had too much coffee at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> but, and <laughs> which isn't bad. But it's very true. And now, yeah, and now you've still got amazing enthusiasm, incredible positivity. But there's a beat mm. in what you do. There's a concentration almost. There's a there's a time to absorb. Yeah, I think what I did before was I always. I always kind of played up to the character that I felt everybody else thought I should be. Interesting. Whatever that environment was or whatever everybody else expected to be. Now what I am is the character that I want to be. So I am, bizarrely, I realized that I'd gone through, like so many of us do, go through life constantly just wanting people to like you. So playing, playing the character... So people will be, oh, I'll free that guy. He's a good guy. Oh, he's a card. Yeah. Oh, he's always the one in the room will do it. And then I've, I've learned that I'm okay if people don't like me for being me. And that's me with my good things. That's me with my flaws. But what I'm not okay with anymore is being somebody else just to have the affirmation of a room or the affirmation of a crowd. And, and you know, you're right. When we, when we work together, um, I, am, I am me and I say things. And I think me is somebody who has flaws, but also doesn't... Everyone does. Yeah. Everyone does. Yeah. It's like, and I see it a lot on Instagram and it is one of those kind of like slightly kind of cod psychology phrases, but what other people think about me is none of my business. And mm. I think if you can remind yourself that, regularly yeah yeah it's it's quite you know what I don't actually as long as you're not going around obviously doing heinous things yeah yeah of course of course yeah let's get this right here (laughs) you have a basic level of decency actually it's so you waste so much time kind of thinking about that and you can't change fundamentally can you 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 can't but I think what you can do and again this is something that I suppose at the age I am now I thought that I would be kind of settled, right? And I am settled, but what I constantly want to do is I want to keep evolving. So I never want to stop learning. I never want to stop seeing opportunities and taking opportunities and deciding whether that's for me or that 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 isn't for me. And that's another thing that I feel is a great part of my personality that I never had before. Like I don't claim because it's an impossibility for me to claim that I'd be intelligent, right? I really don't claim you that. Are. Yeah, you have huge emotional intelligence and skills with people. Yeah, and I, and I think that's what I work on now is I've kind of find this thing where, okay, you know, I would love to be intelligent when it comes to 
mathematics when it comes to English, job, whatever. I would love to be in, but I realize that I have different skills, different sets. And also when I've come from a position of like, all I ever wanted to do in my life, Gabs, as, as you all know, was play rugby. That's all I ever wanted to do. That's all I ever trained for. That's all I ever was motivated to do. And you never consider what you're going to do when you finish rugby. And, you know, I came to a point then in my life where I realized my whole education, every opportunity that was given to me at an, at an age when, you know, people are going to university or they're striving for grades, striving for results. My strive was only to be in the first team. My strive was only to be a professional rugby player. So when you get to a point, you think, you look back and think, oh my God, I haven't got a, I haven't got a qualification to my name. I don't have a skill set apart from being able to play rugby. But then what I realize is rugby gives, rugby gives you like a platform, however big or small that platform may be. And then it's up to you to use that opportunity of a platform to kind of use the skill set that you've learned mm-hmm. in rugby to enhance your life or prove that you can do something different. And enhance other people's lives because what you have done, obviously, you know, you are a campaigner mm. on so many different levels, which let's get to that kind of maybe in a moment in terms of how all that came about. But it's interesting, we just go back a little bit, what you said about academic intelligence, mm. because I want to know, this isn't, you know, supposed to be a retrospective podcast, we're supposed to talk about the now and you brilliantly started off about that. But I've been thinking a lot about education recently, actually, and how perhaps education just doesn't work for all the way we teach kids. We're not giving them the skill set for life, you mm. know, and, and you know, you didn't have a kind of a whole bag worth of formal, you know, qualifications. You didn't get loads of GCSEs, A-levels and degrees and things. What was your opinion of yourself when you were a kid? What did you feel about Gareth Thomas? Uh, a waste of time. A waste of time. Um, I felt, I felt I never took anything serious rugby was my rugby kind of was my outlet so did you have a paradoxical self-esteem then in many ways where you had like a really low self-esteem about some bits of yourself but really high self-esteem about other bits uh no i i I, um, do you know what i don't think i ever really had a like a high self-esteem like i i wanted to fit in more than anything and for me as much as I loved rugby, it was also a way of fitting in. Now, I, I, was, never, I was never blessed academically. I felt, I felt visually that like, I, wasn't, I, was never, I was never good looking. I, 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 would, you know, I, did, I didn't have much about myself. But what rugby gave me, as well as having the passion for it, it gave, me, it gave me an opportunity to fit in. It gave me an opportunity to be someone that that nothing else could give me the platform to do. You know, I couldn't be the person in school that everyone would go to and say, oh, can you help me with homework? Or I wouldn't be the guy in school where the girls always wanted to be with that guy. Like I had none, but rugby was the only thing that gave me the opportunity to be able to have, have the ability to have friends and to feel like I belong. And you did that brilliantly and captained your country and had huge accolades. And then the thing that kind of came to almost define not just your rugby career, but your life was when you came out as a gay man and you did that while still so heavily entrenched in the sport, Mm -hmm. which is what I think made it such a powerful moment. 
Uh, it's almost like that is almost like a midlife crisis in lots of kind of ways, isn't it? Because obviously you're, you've almost changed the trajectory of your life because you're basically saying, hey, guys, this person you thought I was, this is who I am. Yeah. And a lot of gay men and perhaps older gay men kind of did that a lot more, didn't they? They didn't start out life as a 19-year-old going, hey, dad, mom, I'm gay. Yeah. You know, they waited until they'd have got married, had kids, you know, all those things. So so that did that at that point feel like a crisis in your kind of head or was it always a moment of clarity? It was It was, It was. was what I class as a, cro- as a crossroads, like you say, a, a, mid, a midpoint, but also kind of an end point mm-hmm. as to whether I will continue to another crossroads or whether I will just kind of, you know, fall off the, fall off the edge. So it was, it was, it was, it was a decision made for me um, personally. It was a public decision, but it was made in a very personal way because, you know, I, I had come to a point in my life where, you know, this crossroads represented so many things, but I think more than anything, it represented a life and, and not knowing what life is going to be or, bluntly putting it at death because at the time I was I was very suicidal so it was like and, and I'd always grown up knowing knowing I was different but never knowing I was gay because I couldn't accept that or or my identity never came across as gay because all the change rooms I was in people were like you know if somebody was bad at rugby then they were gay if somebody was weak they were gay and I was like well I feel like I'm good at them and I'm gay or I think I'm gay but I can't be because my identity doesn't add up to what everybody else is telling me so and as well what I wanted to see was somebody who had played sport and continued because what made me so scared was the fact that there was no blueprint like nobody had ever done this before so I didn't know what the reaction um, was going to be and that and that really scared me but also it kind of annoyed me because I'm also very motivated and very driven and I thought well if I'm going to do this I'm going to be I'm going to be that change I'm going to be the change mm-hmm. that I want to see change happen. To see yeah. yeah. And, you know, in, in a world that's very stereotypical, society creates a stereotype. And I feel so many people lie because they feel like they need to continue that, that stereotype. But again, going down the direction I chose to go down, but having no idea where that road leads, like not a single clue as to where it leads. Because I guess... I mean, I've read your books and, and at that point, your gay life was very secret and it was spent kind of in Soho and it was mm. kind of like, you know, running away from this other life. So you didn't really have a kind of vision of what it could be like to live a steady kind of normal and in inverted commas mm. life as a gay man, did you? Because the, the gay life you were living was this like fast paced, exciting thing going on kind mm. of over here. So so that in itself, because now you're so domestically blissed out living with Steve and the way you live. It's it's so strange to kind of imagine that that younger man going, is that possible? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you didn't have any gay role models like that, did you? Not, there was nobody you knew that could, you could say, oh, you can just live in a house. Not, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> just. <laughs> but, but I think that's the thing as well, Gabs, is, is, is the reality of the gay life I was living and so many other people that I saw, and I still see to this day, and, and, and I make sure people don't feel this way, is when you walk into into a gay bar, like being gay can be unbelievably lonely. Like if you come from somewhere where you feel you have to go to London um, to be authentic, then you don't just go to London and just be just because you're gay, you know, you have a thousand friends or people want to be, it's, it's, it's so lonely. And I stood in corners of bars 
like just hiding. And I'd look around and I'd just see so many other people doing exactly the same thing in the exact same position. Um, and, and that's why I'm so, the life I have now with Stephen, that's why I care so much about it because I genuinely, I even to this day now, we feel, and we have come on a, a lot more, but I genuinely never thought that I could be in a position where I could still live in the same place where I was born. I still live in Bridgend and live in the house with my husband. Like I go to, I go to Lidl's with my husband. <laughs> like we walk hand in hand through the streets with my husband. And that's why I protect it. That's why I make sure everything to me is, is very perfect because I care for it. Absolutely. And, and it is the platform which you started off saying how happy you are at the moment because you're able to kind of, you know, be the person you want to be. That's just about actually realising you don't have to please people. And yeah. then you've got this domestic setup which allows you, it's like, the, it's like your roots, isn't it? And you're allowed to yeah. grow and flourish because the roots are so good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because, you know, Stephen's story to where he is as well. Like Stephen, Stephen didn't come out as gay until like six years ago. And Stephen's 57. Mm. So when I first met Steve, he was in the closet. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to come out again. But for you now, for your mother and father, I was like, Jesus Christ, give them all a break. Um, so I went through that whole process with Steve. And, and that's, again, that's how much he he appreciates it. You know, Steve has stepdaughters. I have a I have a stepdaughter through it. Soon to be a, a I don't even know what step you would granddad. call it. Step-granddad. You're going to be a step-granddad. Is there a, a step-granddad? Yeah, I don't even know what it is. Um, in, about, in about six weeks. Amazing. And I would, yeah, but I would think that that's amazing, right? But the fact now that um, Anna's in between houses and Anna and James have moved in you. The so baby's going to live with you. Oh, my God. There's a couple of advantages <laughs> about being gay. And I think, like, not having, not, ha- not having like, young babies wake up throughout the night constantly is a decision I think that it's only you fair. kind of make. I think it's only fair that you get to experience this. I cannot wait to hear how this goes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, God. You, you are... Um, in such great shape, you've done some amazing physical challenges. And um, and I wonder, I mean, not least learning to swim because you wanted to do an Ironman. I mean, that in itself. What were you, about 43, 44 when you decided to learn to swim? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, God, yeah, 44. Right. And so most people go, I want to learn to swim. You go, I'm doing an Ironman. I better learn the swimming part of it, right? So, I know, I know. Th- 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 those kinds of things. And you still have those all lined up. You're still always doing something like that. What What part of that is a kind of eternal need to be physically that man again, you know, the younger rugby player that needs to pursue that yeah. fix of adrenaline. I just think it's the fact that being physical to me has always been a really important part of my life. And I want to keep that evolving as well. I don't want to be a 46, a 50, a 55-year-old person who says, oh, do you know what? Yeah, I go to the gym every day and I do this little bit and that's enough for me. I, I just want to keep evolving in that place as well so for me to to learn to swim I thought you know what there's a lot of reasons why I want to learn to swim and one is because I'm petrified of water like I was petrified of putting my head in the water and through that whole process um, and so much I've learned in my life I think to evolve we have to confront our fears. So you can't learn to swim every day right so do you do you really lie in bed and think what have I done today that has conquered some fear every day? I try to. What I try to do is I feel in the morning because I kind of understand 
what my what my day is going to be. And I have, as you know, Gabs, I live like a real varied life, you know. So I think to myself, when I look at my diary or I look at things that are coming up, I think to myself, right, okay, is there a sense of fear at doing this? Am I a little bit afraid that I'm going to fail at it? And is my motivation that fear? Mm-hmm. And if it is, I feel like, okay, this week I'm looking forward to doing something like I, I work on a lot of platforms with businesses about understanding diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. within the, within their workplace. And people say to me, like, you know, this must be nothing to you because you played rugby in front of 75,000 people. So sit in front of an auditorium of a hundred people talking about diversity and inclusion must be nothing to you. I'm like, yeah, but I trained my whole life to play rugby on that. I didn't train my whole life for this. And this is a very personal subject. I see what you're saying. There's something, there's an element of jeopardy. There has to be a little bit of jeopardy to it. Yeah. And you, yeah. And that's, and that's obviously, that's also a learning from sport, isn't it? Because you get a performance out of a situation like that, don't you? You know, you see it time and time again, don't we? With teams that are supposed to smash another team, but actually they've just not got the adrenaline there. That team, the underdog. Otherwise the underdog would never win. Yeah. So that's where it comes into play. Yeah. And for me, when I look back on my sporting career and I kind of, when I look back, I, I, I realise kind of who I am now and what I learned from it. And I realised, and this might sound totally bizarre, is that, you know, as a sports person, and definitely now, like I never was and I, I, I never am going to be a winner. What I am is I am a competitor and a fierce competitor because I can, and I wondered why sometimes when we played big games and I was like, you know what, boys in the change rooms, you know what, boys, like, we lost because we weren't the better team today. And people were like, how can you accept losing? Um, it's because what I can't accept is not, not giving trying. your all. And not failing, but bringing out the fear of not doing the best or being the best I could possibly be. And you know it, don't you, in your heart? I mean, I I, I know it when I, I was, did I give, you know, did I prepare enough for that? Did I yeah. just do enough work for that? And and I think that's, you know, that probably is that background in sport where, that kind of t- pr- propels or, or bleeds through your professional life, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because like people say to me, you know, oh, thanks, that was fun. I said, can you give me feedback? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, can you, can you ask <laughs> the auditorium or the people can you, when, you get, when you send out emails, can you give me the feedback? Yeah. And, I'm, and I, have to, I have to say to them, I'm saying, look, and if that feedback is negative or if there's, a thousand good ones and one bad one, but you decide to hide the, hide I the bad. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know because I want to know because for next time, whatever that negative may be, if I feel to me then that it was a negative, then I need to know about it. Do you know what I was? Um, I was looking at the old episodes of, I don't know how it popped up on my own phone telling me there was an episode of Midpoint and, and I kind of went below the line just to see some of the reviews, you know, because I wanted to kind of just gauge, you know, and there were some nice mm. ones. Of course, the one that stuck in my head um, was um, a guy or a woman complaining that I laugh too much. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I, think, I think it was on an episode with Jimmy Carr, you know. And so, um, <laughs> but also the same review said that um, I was, uh, I, I interrupted my guest too much, right? So I thought, okay, maybe I do, maybe I do. Because actually there's a difference between trolling, isn't there? And a difference yeah. between being mean to somebody. And actually you're allowed to have an opinion. And I think, that sometimes in the modern landscape has been a little bit murky. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The kind of trolling and being being abusive to somebody, yeah. whether it's because they're gay, because they're black, because they're different, they're a woman, whatever it is that you don't like about them. But actually giving in a critique is a different thing. Yeah, and, and I always remember a great friend of mine, a guy I played rugby with called Glenn Webb, and he was the first black man to play for Wales. And he's 
he's really intelligent, right? When it when it comes to being able to deal with people. And I remember him saying to me after like, my second game for Bridgend or something it was, and he said, You'll play for Wales one day. Um, and I was like, Don't even go there, like I won't. And he said, The only advice I will give you, when you start playing well and you start reading the good press, he said, You have to read the bad press. And and it's and it stuck with me. And, it's a and balance, I did. Isn't it? It's a balance. Yes. Yeah. And I used to I used to read negative reports. And again, what what it did. It would motivate me. It would motivate me not to be that bad next week or motivate mm. me to make sure that whoever wrote that couldn't write the same next week because I was that much better. That was an impossibility for them to do it. And if they're a good writer, they will concede that you've, you know, that you've improved yeah. or whatever that thing is. And I love it when I read a sports report that does that. I can't believe how much it's improved this season or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, Gareth, yeah. I think you are going to love my guest today because Frances Edmonds is coming on now. She has written a book uh, recently called Repotting Your Life. Uh, she's a longevity and well-being fellow of Stanford University's Distinguished Careers Institute from 2018. And she's had a very varied career herself. So uh, welcome on board, Frances. Good to see you. Thank you, Gabby. And I have to say, Gareth, if you've got any spare time, you could really be the poster boy for my book, Repotting Your Life, because everything you've said about a growth mindset, that is exactly the kind of person who's going to flourish throughout a long life. Well, it's interesting, Francis, Gareth, Gareth's vocabulary, and I can guarantee you, by the way, he hasn't read your book, and that's not an insult. That's just because, <laughs> yeah. you, that's just because you might have heard his... If he, teaches me, if he teaches me how to play rugby and how to learn how to swim in the springtime of my senility, listen, you are showing all the attributes that people who really need to get on in life, because you know what? You, Gareth, and, and I think you'll agree on this, Gabby, you've seen a lot of sportsmen who then get stuck in their glory days and they can't move on. They get kind of pot bound like those plants who, and that was really one of the metaphors I used in the book. You know, you see those plants, they're not exactly dead, but they're withering because they've grown out of the pot. Well, Francis, can we just pause you there and go back? Because I loved that, why you called your book that. And that was to do, you were sat watching a TV show, weren't you? A yeah. gardening show. So I was watching one of those gardening programmes. Like I watch cookery programmes, you kind of watch them and you never Mind do it. Mindlessly, you know, of... I was mindlessly <laughs> watching the garden, and I, I don't know who it was, but the the commentator, the gardener, he picked up this pot, and it had this kind of withered old, sad little, little languishing plant in it, and he pulled it out, and the, the the roots were going round and round in a tight little ball. He said, "This plant is pot bound; it's sort of run out of nutrients in its environment. It's no longer flourishing. Unless I repot this plant, it's going to wither and die." And I thought, "Oh my God." I am pot bound. <laughs> and that is kind of almost where I came from wanting to do, generally to do midpoint, was kind of people getting to this kind of stage in life. Because it does tend to happen, obviously, at a certain age, doesn't it? Because you've kind of, you've gone through some various life landmarks, you know, whether it is having a family or whether it's getting married or whether it's getting divorced. And and then it's that kind of feeling of I'm getting older physically. What do I do? Mentally, what do I do? Do I just stay on this path? So your book is, it's like a handbook in a way, isn't it? It's like you give concrete tips and I'm all for concrete tips for people because it's okay yeah. saying get on with it but what does that mean you know just get on and do yeah follow your dream you know I mean that's just the most kind of nebulous thing ever to say to somebody isn't it 
<laughs> yes, exactly. You have to give people actionable tips. First of all, Gabby, I have to say I'm very flattered to be on midpoint because I will never again see 65. But I'm, kind of in, I'm kind of an extra child. Francis, did, uh, here's the bad news. You're living to 130. Uh, no, this is the thing. No, seriously, this is another thing. I mean, I, I studied at the Centre of Longevity at Stanford and it's it, it, a baby born today has every chance of living 100 years. So all these inflection points, all these pivots that we talk about, once upon a time, we kind of had a three-chapter life, didn't we? You went to school, education, college, whatever you did, learned, and then you earned, you earned a living, and then you retired. Three sort of crossroads, as Gareth called them. No, now we're going to have far more of these crossroads. So the sooner you learn how to manage these, this sort of transformational change in your life, the better. Right. Okay. So what do you do with that feeling? And how do you move on? How do you, you know, repot yourself? Some things you can't change. Like if somebody dies or you have a, an incurable illness, I call those sort of black hole problems. And the only thing you can do about those is change the way you respond to them or the way you're thinking about them. But other things that you can change. So first of all, really, when you've identified that you're pot bound, you have to name it. You know, you have to say, why is it I'm not feeling right? But what is it? Name it. Often it's not as easy as all that to try and sort of articulate what it is. So you have to do some work on what's wrong. Am I not living my authentic life or is this relationship not working or I have a bad pattern? I'm eating too much. I'm drinking too much. I'm not working too much. I'm working too much. When you've named that pattern, you, you start to tame it when you understand what it is. At that point, you can start reframing it, saying, do I really want to sit in bed all day watching Netflix? Do I want to sit in this useless relationship or this bad job or do I want to do something about it? So that is the first part of of the process. Then you have to uproot from your old life and move into another situation. So that's tough. And that's when you uh, sort of have a look at the skill set that you've got. And those are transferable skills. I mean, I think particularly with a lot of women who, you know, just think, oh, I'm just a mother and a homemaker. And when you look at the skill set you need to keep all that afloat, you could be running a FTSE 100 company. Oh, yeah. I was a non-exec director on on the board of a company. And the chairman I was kind of talking to him about something and I said, I'm not sure I can make that meeting. And I have something to do with the children. And I said, oh, I'm the CEO of my family. And he laughed at me as if I was joking. I was like, no, no, that's that's kind of how I see my role here. So <laughs> yeah. that's, yeah. that's I have to kind of keep all those things going. Go on, guys. Can I, can I Fra- Francis, you know what, everything you're saying, and it might be the exact same answer to what you just said, but what you're saying kind of rings true with me, right? But also, because the area I'm from, you know, that change, what if that pressure and that societal thing is the norm. So, for instance, uh, my stepdaughter and so many people around me feel that they go to school, they, they, they're not really interested or because they feel they don't want to leave Bridgend or they can't leave Bridgend. They buy a house, they get roots up here and they kind of never, they, they never spread it. And I'm like, go and see the world. Like, go I, I'm, I'm too old. Like, my time, I'm settled. Like, mm-hmm. it just seems that sometimes, societally, everybody, especially here in Bridgend, just does what everybody else does. Yeah. And that seems to be right because everybody else just does it. To be fair to Bridgend, it's not just Bridgend. I want my listeners in Bridgend to feel warm and cosy and loved. Um, but this is, you know, there is a kind of a coziness, isn't there, in certain kind of, you know, ways of living. And yeah. it's feeling a bit too comfortable yeah. and, and and there's a fear. Yeah, this is not a geographical thing. This It needn't necessarily be a place. It can be a situation you're in. I mean, people in rubbish relationships, jobs that don't mm. suit them. Somebody once drew an analogy and it was rather unfortunate, but yeah, it's like a baby's nappy. It's warm and comfortable, but it's toxic. <laughs> now, it is difficult. Do you know what? I don't like the pop psychologists who say things are easy. Nothing worth doing is easy. Yeah. Let's get that out of the way right now. You know, when you want to do deep stuff on yourself, 
yourself, it's going to cost you. And let's get that out of the way up front. Of course, it's hard. You know, of course, it's tough if you want to work out every day to lose some weight or you want to change the way you eat. But look at what you're going to get when you get to that other side. Yeah. And you, you do draw attention to that, which I think is is very helpful, Francis. So, yeah, you uproot. And then what you do is you have to make a plan. And there's a plan in your life. So, you know, you do an inventory of the skills you've got. Then you find the gaps, the lacunae in your skill set that you're going to have to fill. Because you may have been great, wonderful in one area of endeavor. Good for you. But now you're moving into another area of endeavor where you're starting at the bottom of the ladder with an open beginner's mindset and in all humility asking people to give you some feedback and help you. And and these are key lessons. I mean, they're worth repeating. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just that we have to remind ourselves of what these lessons are. And just uh, briefly, Francis, your personal journey, you know, to go to Stanford and, you know, at the age that you were and to kind of move into a halls of residence in Palo Alto and just that whole thing was, you know, I was I was reading it kind of feeling trepidation for you thinking, wow, this is so incredibly brave, you know, to, to do that. Yeah, but you know what you do? You you take with you all the changes that have happened in your life, right? I'd, I'd worked through lots of changes. You know, I'd, mm. I'd had various transitions in my life, but I hit, as I say, the springtime of my senility, deep middle age, and nothing was working. When the student is ready, the master will appear, as the old Zen sort of saying goes. And I was kind of sort of sick of what was going on. And then some friends of mine said, well, we're off to a program in Stanford, you know. It's 25 fellows from all over the world who will be put together in this cohort 25 fellows from all over the world with a program based on wellness and purpose and community and see what happens. Oh, Oh, it sounds glorious. That is glorious. Now, not everybody can do that, Gabby. Not everybody can uproot themselves, leave Notting Hill, go off to Stanford and do that. But I have tried to distill the quintessence of all those learnings in a very actionable book about how you do manage things step by step. Small things like, yeah, got to let my house to pay the gin bill over there in Palo Alto. You know, got to get rid of the car. (laughs) Got to find a bank account in in America. You know, all of those boring Mm. little steps. When every day you can tick off a little step in what needs to be done to get to a big goal that motivates you that keeps you going and eventually you look back you think how did I manage all of that how Mm. did that happen how did I get there those are confidence building measures for the next time you want to repot and do something else because you know the thing is and you said this guy it never ends if you have a growth mindset and what will keep you sort of living longer, fitter, healthier, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, is doing new things. It, it sort of revivifies you like the plant that's been repotted. Francis, I, you're an absolute inspiration. I'm so glad you well, came on. Well, thank you, Gabby. Just before you go, I'd like, if you've had time to think about it, three tips for people to take away. Well, do you know what I would say? And these are the three tips of life, not just from repotting your life, but the three tips for life. And it's humility. That's a beginner's mind. The humility not to think I'm the big deal. I will start at the bottom again and I will learn. That's humility. Humanity, which is an openness and a curiosity about people and an understanding that every single body can teach you something. Inclusivity is the policy and diversity will then be the outcome. And the third thing I think is key is a sense of humour. Because you know what, you can't change the facts of your life, but you can change the way you look at them. You can decide on the genre of your life. Humour, the three H's. The three H's, I love it. (laughs) Humility, humanity and humour. And Francis, you've provided them all for us today. Francis Edmonds, Repotting Your Life is definitely one that I would uh, recommend. This has suddenly turned into a book club. Uh, (laughs) Francis on that. And uh, thank you so much, Francis. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
Do you know what, Gareth? I didn't say to you at the time, but I knew when I was chatting to you that Francis was listening. I was thinking, she's just going to love all the stuff you're saying because it just kind of so coincided with a lot of the language of the book as well, growth and everything. So well done you for being star student. <laughs> Emma, I feel, I, feel like, I feel like I should have written a book before then about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I missed an opportunity there. Gee, you know, just go and rejig the words. Just rejig the yeah. words. <laughs> I want to move things in a slightly different direction and talk about the physical side of where you are. We talked about you swimming and being fit and everything, right? And yeah. rugby players of your repute are supposed to have more aches and pains than I think you've got. I live with one mm. who's got a lot. You never moan about your body when, you know, you never say my back's hurting or my, you know, is, it, is everything in fine working order? No, not not working order at all. Like I do have pains in my knees, I have pains in in my back. But what I focus on trying to do is is it's not it's not ignoring it, but I just feel that if I don't allow it to affect me, then I feel I can kind of move on without it actually being able to affect what I have to do in that day. Do you have physio or anything? No, no, not not at all, not at all. Um, I'm too tight to pay for private physio. <laughs> like when I played rugby, physio was free. Anything that's not free anymore, I, I, it really has to be worth it. So no, I, I, I don't. But I feel, you know, when, when my aches and pains are worse is when I slow down. Mm. So when I don't continue this is, exercising. This is one of which the, is, the burdens of an ex... I mean, I, my sporting career was not nowhere near as long as prolific, but one of the burdens of being a high-performance sports person is that you have to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. to keep it up, otherwise your body will tell you that it doesn't want to stop. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, but, you know, it's, it's all, that's also a good motivation yeah. to, to keep going. It's good motivation because I do know... Steve sometimes sits down and says to me, oh my God, like you're not 21, like, chill out. Like, what are you doing? Um, and I say to him, one day, like one day I won't be able to, to do this anymore. Like one day I'm sure that I'll be too painful for to be able to do it. But when that day will come, I genuinely don't know. And I think the more I keep doing it, then the more I'm putting that day off. Well, in the first series and the second series, um, actually, we had the trainer who uh, trains a lot of the, the comic relief. All oh, right. Not Greg White, is it? No. Yeah, yeah Greg yeah, White. Yeah, Greg, Greg yeah, White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah and Greg's big takeaway piece of advice, I said, what's the one thing that a middle-aged man or woman should really... He said, you've got to do it as much as you've ever done it, but even harder. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was, and it was, I think I repeated it to Claudia Winkleman, who said, oh, I thought you said it, we had to eat more crisps. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and I kind of keep, I keep mentioning that because it is so, so important. But yeah. you have another physical challenge, obviously, to, to consider. And that is another huge kind of thing that, you know, has affected your life in terms of who you are as a campaigner when you came uh, out publicly two years ago and revealed that you're living with HIV. Yeah. And and for that, you take a pill every day, is that right? Yeah, for that, um, I take one tablet uh, every single day. And, and uh, it's interesting because when I tell people this, they seriously expect that this tablet is kind of like a giant gobstopper or something that is... You know, it's, it's just packed with I know, all these amazing things that glows in the dark. And it's just, it's quite boring when I show people because it's literally just a, a tablet. It looks, I, like a, looks like a neurofen or something. It's, yeah, it's just, it generally is just nothing to look at. Um, but what that, what, that, what that does is it gives me a sense of being able to live my life because it eradicates, eradicates the fear I used to have. But more importantly, it eradicates the fear of people, people around me. One, I know I cannot transmit HIV to, to my sexual partner, which is obviously my husband, because, you know, we live in an environment where HIV was never really spoken about. 
So I was a version of self-stigma because nobody had ever spoken about it. So when I found out, I thought I was going to die. And I realised that my family are going to think exactly the same because we've never had a conversation. So why are they going to think anything different? Mm. Living with HIV, the stigma that surrounds it is is the stigma of potentially transmission of mm-hmm, HIV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many people thought and, and still think, weirdly enough, that you can, you know, catch off a toilet seat or the same door handle, giving someone a hug, um, whatever it may, may be, people still have these illusions of it. So to know I could be around my close friends, my close family, and them not feel like they are at risk gives me a sense of calm. But knowing that so many people don't think the same way as my family gives me a sense that everybody who lives with HIV or everybody faces discrimination should be in the same position I am. Like they should be allowed to have have a normal, happy, healthy life without fear of discrimination, of living with HIV or living with being gay or living with any other. That's actually a theme that goes through stronger, isn't it, as well? There's there's a, a lot of that is kind of, you can see that that experience obviously has motivated your thinking yeah. to kind of move into wider areas, if you like, yeah. away from your own personal story. Yeah, yeah, it, it has. And one the, the big motivation in there is, you know, as, as we said earlier, Gabs, like my... my my ambition in life was only ever to play rugby. And then I spoke about my sexuality and that was a difficult circumstance. And then I spoke about my HIV and that was a difficult circumstance. And I feel, and so many people tell me, I have every right in the world to sit down, put my feet up in our lovely house with my lovely husband and get on with life. Like just chill mm. out because I have I have created a lovely life for mm. myself. But you're not, but I as won't. you said at the beginning of this, you're not. No, because you can't. It's not in your nature to do that. And your campaigning and the way you get your voice heard is so powerful that you, you know, you have such a, a skill in doing that as well. So I think it's it would be a waste of that if you weren't able to kind of keep spreading the good news, if you like, or keep spreading, you know, the positivity around him. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I, I miss I miss you so much. I miss working I with you. Um, so I, I will, I will, it's so lovely to see you. I might just pretend to do a podcast with you every week. Yeah, and let's just do it. We can just, <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will love you and leave you, but yeah. you've been an amazing guest and I'm sure um, people have really taken so much from, from your story and from your attitude to midlife, more importantly. So, nice. um, Take care. Love to yeah. Steve. And, God bless um, you and the family. Take care. Bye. Bye, Gareth. How brilliant is Gareth Thomas? He's such a good friend. He's so supportive, a wonderful colleague. But he is one of those people I get home from work and I can't stop raving about him. Now, he's been through so much in his life, huge events, but he seems to have come to a place where he seems to understand himself a lot better than he ever has. And he's got the life that I think he truly deserves. So if that's you, if you feel like I'm I'm struggling a little bit to get through big events, then maybe some of the things he said resonated. And maybe you do well to actually read Francis Edmund's book. I really, truly recommend it. Repotting Your Life. It's full of really good takeaway advice if you're a bit stagnant, you're feeling a little bit stuck in life. So a huge thank you to you for listening. And to everyone who's reaching out via the Midpoint Facebook group, I'm really touched that you're sharing your stories. A shout out to Nicola, Victoria and Matt, because I know you were keen to explore 
the midlife career change. So hopefully this episode might have helped you. And if you are new to the online community that we're creating, please come and join us. We are lovely. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Midpointers. Thank you to Lauren Armstrong Carter and Rethink Audio for producing this episode. To my brother-in-law Elvis for our fantastic new music. He's so clever. And to Solgar for supporting us both here and uh, on our online community. But more importantly, with our health, making sure that we are 100% the best we can be with their naturally sourced vitamins and minerals they've been making since 1947. There are over 300 in their range, so there is something for everyone. See you next time. Go well. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.